For the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the, uh, the great conundrum. And it's a discussion that's kind of self-contained. It's not in the flow of the Tanya. The links are going to come back in about two weeks. We're going to start tying it all together. But we started this isolated discussion of uh, how to resolve the truth of Hashem's unity, Hashem being one and nothing else existing, and our perception of self. That's, that's the question that's been at the heart of these last two, three chapters. The truth, we know the truth. The truth is, as the, as the Torah says, Hu levado hu ve'ein zulato. Hashem, it is He and He alone. Nothing else exists beside Him. Everything in the universe, you and I, everything around us, is an expression of God's invigorating energy. Hashem is driving His life force into every single thing that exists at every moment. And to use the model of the Tanya, the entire creation is God's speech. But it's not speech like me and you speak, where once the word leaves, it's separate from us and we have no control, but it's actually like a, speak, like a speech within the intimate self of the speaker. It doesn't assume its own identity. When you compare a word to a person's infinite communicative power and surely to his infinite feelings, the one or two words are utterly valueless, they're insignificant. And so in the same way when we say Hashem created the world through speech, that's the metaphor for the fact that in truth, the world never assumes its own identity. Like the daydream we kept on talking about last week and two weeks ago, a guy who invents an entire reality in a daydream, none of the beings in his dream ever become a self because they only exist within the context of the dream. And so the same way the entirety of the universe exists within the context of Hashem's being. That's the truth of reality if we wanted to use that yardstick. But the problem is, and this was the question posed last week in chapter 21, is that uh, the audience, which is us, our perspective, our vantage point, is, uh, is very different. It, t- just the simple headline is, we do exist. We do have our own self-perception. And uh, how does that click with Hashem's oneness? And last week we introduced the Kabbalistic secret of the Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is the, the Hebrew word, which means contraction or compression. Somebody uploaded a video to our yeah. chat. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gil, 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 Gil did. Yeah. Yes. Great video. Great video, which Excellent. explains Great that idea video. of Hashem having to distill or filter His life force so that we could experience it. In other words, what the Alter Rebbe taught us last week is that Hashem wants this paradox. He orchestrated it. He orchestrated the world to be set up in a way where there's a truth, but it's not apparent. Hidden. It's hidden. And he constructed himself. He constructed these veils, these curtains, these masks that uh, force 
every being to lose touch with that truth. So now there's no being in any level of the universe, not only in the physical level, but in the entire cosmos and the entire spiritual cosmos, there's no being that appreciates the truth of reality as it is. Everybody and every being is forced to redefine it in some way. We have to kind of make peace and figure out how the godly truth is going to be reflected within us. And uh, there's a wide spectrum to this. There's a wide spectrum. I mean, first, every human is different. So we each interpret the godly truth as it infiltrates our lives in a different way. But forget, forget us for a second. There, there's incredible diversity. There's incredible diversity on every level. For some beings, and we mentioned this in the past about angels, for some beings, all that Tzimtzum does, all this, all this contraction does, is uh, it puts ourself before God. Our first awareness is ourself, second awareness is God. I'm going to finish the thought and then we'll take it. That's for some beings. For other beings, it's, uh, it's more egotistical. The tzimtzum is so strong, the veil, the covering, is thicker. And uh, it's not just that we see ourselves and then we see God. It's we see ourselves as a self-entity, mm. as independent, as self-sufficient. You know, let, let, me, let me use the, the speech metaphor again. Hashem is the, is the speaker and the world is His speech. In the ultimate world, in the perfect world, we would see ourselves as being a part of the identity of the speaker. We wouldn't see ourselves as distinct. The tzimtzum can cause that uh, I can see myself as a projection of the divine speech. So it's not as bad. You know, I, I, I still acknowledge that Hashem is the speaker and that He created the entire reality. But I see myself as something that's a projection or being charged by the godly life force. Self-awareness to a given extent. Where I can simultaneously acknowledge that a truth higher than me exists, but I also know myself. And that's where chapter 21 ended. The first level of what Simpson can accomplish. God's contraction, God's compression of his energy could create a reality where we could see ourselves as separate from the speaker. But at least we acknowledge his existence. Chapter 22, which is tonight, makes the case that Simtsum could be even more powerful. Hashem could hide himself to an extent where not just things exist and have self-awareness and self-perception and self-consciousness, but also an ego. That's where we're headed tonight. Did you think God will, God will reveal? God will hide himself to the extent that we can not only think of ourselves as something separate, getting life from Hashem, but we could actually feel completely autonomous, completely independent. <clears throat> I, I remember 
it's a personal experience and it's nothing major, but I'm sure everyone has, has, has uh, maybe had something like this. I was in Israel um, and uh, we had gone there for a couple of days and somebody had put us up in a hotel, me and my dad. And I remember we went to sleep very late and then we had to be up at a certain time for something. But uh, the curtains on the, you know, blocking the window were so thick that uh, you actually thought it was still night. And it was like 9 a.m. already. And we had to, we had to have been out. But it, literally the curtain was so, was so thick that it looked like it was night. That's my metaphor for one level. That's what I put in my kids' bedrooms. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have them in mine. Okay, so yeah, yeah they have, they have blackout shades. And it, look, it works, it works for, for getting to sleep in the right times. But that's, you see, that's uh, one, one level of an independent symptom where at least you know the truth. You know, it, it, everything around you looks like it's hiding the truth. But once you get a watch, you know, there is a, yeah, you know, you know that there is something outside of it. It's daytime. Hmm. That's, that's one level of the egotistical tzimtzum. Hashem could let us feel autonomous, even though intellectually we uh, acknowledge that there's a God. But there's even a deeper level. Or I guess the word is not deeper, but sadder. A sadder, tougher, more difficult level where... Hashem invested in this world the possibility not just to feel separate but to actually deny his existence. Just, just, just consider the absurdity. It's like you're, in the moment where you're being sustained from a godly energy, you're declaring that God doesn't exist. Mm. That it, it, it's, a, it's a possibility. And atheists exist. They are the proof. Hashem has allowed for himself to be so hidden that he himself can be denied. You know, the, the, the quintessential biblical example for this is Paro. Paro is recorded in the book of Yechezkel, Ezekiel, as, as saying, um, the Nile is mine and I made myself. He believed he was a God. Not just... I'm a being that can survive on my own. I'm independent. I have my own powers. But uh, I actually... I manifest myself. Yeah. yeah. In other words, there is no God. Kind of personality. Not only that I'm, you know, like I'm a speech that separated from the speaker. There is no speaker. Hmm. To, use that, to use that analogy. The that's... That's the extent of, of the, of the symptoms, you know... This is the world we live in. We talk about the manifestations of it in the times we're living through today, but that, that is our world. Hashem orchestrated it in a way where He is so indiscernible that uh, we could entertain, we could perpetuate a delusion, an untruth, that uh, there is no godly power running the world. That's the opening declaration of chapter 22 the extent of the tzimtzum. Wow. How powerfully Hashem could hide himself. And before, before we go on, there's something extremely powerful about this. You know, there's a, a Hasidic song. There's a Hasidic nigan 
that uh, with four words Can you sing it for us? from the prophet. The prophet Isaiah says, Achen ata kel mistater. It's true. You are a God that conceals himself. Hmm. Okay, I mean, what words for a song? And it's a yeah. happy song. Hmm. It's like a, it's like almost like a, like a, like a celebration. Beer hall song. Yeah. True God, you are, you are a God of concealment. Wow. And, you know, what's the song what about that? What's the song about concealment? Hmm. And I once heard from an older chassid, he said, it's a simcha when you find out that God is concealed. Because identifying the concealment, identifying the concealment makes it no longer concealed. Ah, that's the opposite. Yeah, you know, the Baal Shem Tov said, the Baal Shem Tov gave a wonderful commentary. There's a verse towards the end of the Torah where Hashem is foreseeing negative things that are going to happen in the, in the future exile. He says, haster astir I will hide, I will surely hide my face on that day. A double expression of hiddenness. And the Bashem Tov said, the tragedy is not that God is hidden. The tragedy is that the hiddenness is hidden. Where we lose track that there's even a concealment. Because once you, once you can nail, now of course, we want Hashem to be revealed. Of course, we want to experience... If you think it's absence instead of concealment. Mathematics. Right. Well, Double fake. negative it's equals a positive. Well, in, in, in other words, of course, in the best image, we want there to be revelation, divine consciousness, and everything attached to that. But if we're in a world of concealment, we want to make sure that we're identifying it, that we're calling it out. You know, dictatorships. First thing any dictator does when he wants to start his dictatorship is screening information coming to the masses. Get rid of the press. Same idea. Why? Because that's, that's, that's where control is at. Illegal corruption is all with cover-ups. The second you blow the cover, you know, the second people see the lie of the dictatorship is the minute it's overthrown. And it doesn't matter how big it is. You know, the Soviet Union is, is one of the biggest proofs of this. A huge empire for 50 years killed 30 million people. The minute that the truth was uncovered is the minute it came down. Just like it is physically, that pointing it out is the first step to the cure. Klipa which is the reality that covers godliness. The reality of this world which, create, which, is, which is created by the Tzimtzum. Klipa's biggest threat is exposure. You know, think about a physical urge. Urges function on spontaneity. You know, it's like, imagine you're in the middle of a, of a passion for something, something low, something, something base, some kind of desire and you're about to engage, and then you get a phone call, okay? Hello? Listen, Moshe, what do you think about uh, some important values in life? You know, a guy starts asking you these philosophical questions. If you get into that conversation, you're going to lose the passion. If you want to keep going with the passion, the first thing you have to do is hang up that phone. 
because or don't even answer. Because because that, that's how urges work. The second they're not spontaneous and in the moment, the second they're thrown off, the second they're exposed, the second they're out in the open, they're naked. They don't have any power anymore. Calling out the tzimtzum. Just saying, guys, the reality that we see is not the truth. It's a compression, it's a contraction, it's a concealment. Is itself the first step to pulling the curtain back. You want to know the best yardstick? If you're doing something and you want to know, am I betraying my inner truth right now? Am I going against my inner moral code? The best question to ask yourself is, do I fear exposure? What would my grandmother say? If she saw me. Right. Yeah. Do you want to be seen in this moment? That's a great measuring stick. The world of Zoom. We, have, we, we now have new lessons. Yeah. Do you want to be seen doing what you're doing? Good. So things that are good have this intrinsic power where um, they're good across the board. In fact, you actually want to be seen in a certain way. You know, like, let's just revisit that phone call. If you were in the middle of, you know, writing something incredible or doing something charitable and somebody called you and said, hey, listen, I want to talk to you about your, your values in life. You go like, absolutely, man. This is a great time to talk about this when I'm engaged. Well, yeah, let's FaceTime, exactly. See me, see me what I'm doing because what I'm doing is fantastic. Versus Klippa, the shell, all it wants is to stay hidden. So just, just saying the way it is, you know, this is life in Hashem's universe. A life where, where we don't see. A life where we can think we're on our own and a life where we can deny God, just, just saying that is already the first step. But then there's an important disclaimer. And this is how the Alter Rebbe continues the chapter. It says one disclaimer. Hashem made the tzimtzum. It's not our fault, we didn't create it. Hashem set up the world in this way. But, it's a means to an end and not the end in itself. It's there for a purpose. Hashem doesn't actually want it. And the Altar Rebbe finds a hint for this in a verse in the Torah which calls idols, typically we know it as Avodah Zarah, but the Torah calls idols Elohim Acherim, other gods. You know, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, Hashem says, don't have other gods before me. It's a reference to idols. Why are they called other gods? So simply, simply Rashi says, they're called other gods. They're not gods. So why are they called other gods? Because... They're gods to others. That's what Rashi says. Other people consider them to be God. Or a less flattering explanation, Rashi says, means the gods act otherly 
to their worshipers. They don't have their backs. In the end of the day, you know, when trouble hits, you turn to the idol, he's not going to help you. But that's the simple shot reason why they're called other gods. But the Alter Rebbe says, in chapter 22, the word in Hebrew for other is acher. Acher shares the same Hebrew etymology as achor, which means behind. Says the Alter Rebbe, have you ever had to give something to somebody that you didn't want to give them? Some enemy of yours, you, 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 were, you, didn't, you didn't want to give them anything. Circumstances forced you, the law forced you, who knows what forced you? Huh? The IRS. Somebody is forcing you to uh, come face to face with an enemy, an arch enemy, and you have to give him, you know, or her. <laughs> Ten grand. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't gonna go there. I wasn't gonna go there, but now that you brought it up, you know. Yeah. It's nice when the quiet parts are yeah, Exactly. Uh, and uh, you know, so the author Rebbe says, what, what happens when a person gives something somebody they, that he doesn't want to give them to? The Zohar says, you give it to them over your shoulder, mm. face away. Mm. Like take it, begrudgingly. When you want to give something to somebody, you show them your face. Panim, celebratory. You're enjoying it. You're feeling connected. Here, it's a present. You engage. When you don't want to deal with the guy, the the analogy for this is achor, your back. You show him your back. In other words, take it. I don't want to talk with you. I know I have to do this. Here you go. We're done. So the Alter Rebbe says, the Torah calls idols, and in fact, all of negativity, other acherim, because Hashem keeps them alive with his hind part, so to speak, lack of interest. Unlike the holy parts of the universe, the good parts of the universe, Hashem is engaged with his face. I want to be connected, I want to be open. Hashem keeps negativity and concealment alive with his back. In other words, of course, there's no physicality here, with his less interested self. He doesn't want it per se. But he still keeps it, and the question is why. We'll deal with that at the end of the chapter. It's a have to versus a want to. Is that part of why Hashem would not show Moses' face? I've always, I've always heard it. You know, that, that's a different uh, thing. It's true. Hashem uses the same expression as their face and back. Yeah. Um, there, the, the Kabbalists explain it has to do with uh, not God's interest or lack of interest, but essence and, uh, and outer elements. There, the, it's a different, it's panim, not in the sense of face, panim in the sense of pinimiyut, okay. in, in inner parts where Hashem's deepest essence cannot be revealed. To the people, it's, it's his back. But, that, but it's, yeah, that's a good... Uh, Yeah, it's good that you brought it in, but it's a separate, separate parsha. So we've identified the tzimtzum. We've identified the extent of its power. It could even create egotistical beings. And we know that Hashem is not particularly interested in it. 
There's one more piece to the puzzle. Same words, again. Other gods. Elohim acherim. Huh? Is that in the Ten Commandments? Yes. Lo yeh You should not have other gods. Well, what's it again? Lo yeh yelecha al panai. You should not have other gods before me. So one reason they're called other gods is because, not other, but because they're in the back. Their lack of interest. But the Alter Rebbe says another interpretation. Using the word other. The very fact that they consider themselves to be other. The very fact that they consider themselves to be another power, another deity holding or wielding some, some kind of energy, some kind of force, is what makes them other gods. And this leads to a very significant interpretation of idolatry. You know, we're very conditioned to imagine idol worship as some kind of potions and mantras and uh, songs and rituals, you know, paganism. We, we, and this is what we've, we've been educated and it did happen at a time. But the heart of idol worship, the heart of other gods is the otherness that we attribute to them. The very fact, and there could be a declaration that says there's another force outside of Hashem is the idol. There's a fascinating piece of Talmud, which the Alter Rebbe quotes, where one sage once asked another sage, there seems to be a contradiction in verses. One verse talks about non-Jews <coughs> denying God's existence. And one verse talks about non-Jews offering sacrifices to God. And uh, he asked him, you know, how do we resolve the non-Jews' attitude to God? And the other sage answered, The non-Jews call God, call Hashem, the God of the gods. Elokad de Elokaya. So they're both true. All, all the non-Jews worship idols. All the non-Jews sacrifice to God. They just believe that Hashem is the God of gods. And there are also other mini-gods. You know the joke of the guy who, uh, interviewing his prospective son-in-law, pulled him right out of yeshiva, Guy's been learning for 10 years. And uh, he says, okay, I'm, you know, you're the best boy in the yeshiva. I want you to marry my daughter. But uh, I got to ask you one question. You know, you, all you've done is all your life is learned. You've never trained in, in a trade. How do you plan to uh, get a house for your family? He says, my dear, God will provide. <laughs> okay. And what do you plan to do about food and clothing? says, look, this is my whole life. Hashem will provide. Okay? Now what will you do about Parnassah? About a livelihood? He says, told you already. Hashem will provide. Guy walks back into his house, comes to his wife. He says, I'm taking this guy. She says, what happened? It's like, he called me God three times already. <laughs> <laughs> it's the little gods. <laughs> Hashem is the big with a G, the low G. Yeah, exactly. G. Ca you know, capital G, lowercase G. Hashem is the big God, big guy in the sky, and there's other forces. That it, that in and of itself is the idol. 
doesn't have to be denying Hashem. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, lighting fires and wearing funny clothes. Just the otherness, the essence of the otherness is what lies at the heart of idol worship. You know, the Talmud says, and then I'll get to your question. Arrogance is equal to idol worship. That's what it says in the Talmud. A person who is arrogant, a person who is haughty, holds himself high, is like he's serving idols. And the, the classical way of understanding this, it's just, you know, the Talmud wants to communicate the negative effect of being haughty. Just like how bad idol worship is. So if you're haughty, it's a very bad thing. But the Alter Rebbe says here, Talmud doesn't make comparisons for nothing. There's something in arrogance that is idolatrous. Some form of the quality of Avodah is in arrogance. Why? Because the inflated sense of self that ego carries flies in the face of Hashem's unity. It's the fact that I am in control. I am at the center of my life. I am making the decisions. You have this, you know, gloated image of yourself and it's just like idol worship because at the heart of idol worship is the otherness, the attributing of force to somebody else. There was a great man who lived in the times of the Baal Shem Tov when Hasidus was just being introduced and he was what they called a parush, a hermit. Secluded himself all his days to learn Torah and do mitzvahs and to just be holy. But uh, it caused him to be egotistical. You know, he was thinking about himself. Look what a great guy I am. Yeah, you think, you know, a guy that dedicates himself to a higher being. But no, he had, a, he had, a, he had an ego. And the Baal Shem Tov was once passing through his town. And he said, you know what? I hear there's a tzaddik just like me, a big righteous guy just like me. Let me go check him out. Let me go visit him. So he comes to the Baal Shem Tov for an audience. The minute he walks into the room, the Baal Shem Tov quotes a verse. And uh, it, it carries the weight in Hebrew. It says, Hayisater ish bamistarim v'ani lo'erenu. Can a man hide in hiding places and I won't see him? That's the literal meaning of the verse. Can a man hide in hiding places and I won't see him? And the Baal Shem Tov read the verse a little differently. He read it, Hayisater ish bamistarim va'ani. If a person hides himself in a hiding place, but still has the eye, lo er enu, God says, I don't see him. In other words, telling him you can hide in the hiding places, but as long as you're carrying your own self, God won't see you. He was very taken aback by this. And he left and he began to work on himself. And a year later, he came back to the Baal Shem Tov's room for an audience. And the Baal Shem Tov quoted him the exact same verse, but put the comma in a different place. If somebody hides in hiding places and the eye is not, 
he puts away his eye, er enu, then I see him. In other words, communicating to him that now he had come full circle and done what he had to do to, uh, to, to eliminate the eye. Because Hashem allows for the psychological perpetuation of believing in the lie of, uh, of self, self-power. Think I was God's gift to woman. Yeah. Well, I found out I was God. <laughs> wow. The extent, you know? Yeah. No, and, and it's 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 true. Because the ego ego is man's biggest obstacle to being in touch with the truth. You know, and we've all been there in some form or another, with a little bit of arrogance. The arrogant man is not able to truly experience anything because he experiences himself in everything. He's always thinking, how am I taking it? How is it reflecting on me? How am I looking? He's always self-conscious. He can never truly um, be, he, he never truly be in touch with the rhythm of life. One of the students of the Magid, of Aaron of Karlin, a very saintly man, he lived, in, he lived a couple of towns over from where the Magid of Mizrich lived. And there was a disciple of the Magid who had spent a couple of months there and uh, was going home and traveled by Karlin. And so he decided to stop by the holy house of Rabbi Aaron of Karlin. Comes there at night and of course the light is burning. He was learning and uh, he knocks on the door and Rabbi Aaron is engrossed in his Torah, but he hears the knock, he says, who is it? Now this guy was a student of the Magid, considered himself a friend of Rabbi Aaron. He said, ich, which means I, it's me. You know, a friend comes to our friend's house, you don't have to give your name, you just say, it's me. Ich. Rabbi Aaron asked again, who's there? He said, ich. Again, he says, it's I. Third time it happens. And there's no answer. Finally, the guy gives his name. He says, oh, it's Shmerel, you know, Chaim Yanko. Okay, now he comes to the door, opens the door, takes him in, and they're chatting. He goes, I don't understand. You know, I, I, I knock on the door, you don't answer me. What's the, what's the game you're playing? He says, Chaim Yanko, what, what did you learn by the Magid? What did you learn by the Magad of Mizrich? He says, what do you mean? We learned about God. We spent six months there. He says, you may have been by the Magad, but you didn't learn anything from the Magad. The Magad taught us that there's only one ich. It's only one I. One true I, and that's Hashem. If you can come to the door and say, it's I. <laughs> I couldn't let you in. So this is, this is the thrust and again, it's a self-standing discussion which is going to continue and the links are going to tie together in two weeks. But just a self-contained discussion of how far Hashem's concealment goes. Not just that we can have an awareness of self, but that we can even deny and absolutely close out Hashem's existence from, our, from ourselves. And the question that remains, brought up by Mark in the beginning, is why? Why do you do it? Why do you do it? Hashem wants, him to, wants us to know Him. Hashem wants us to feel Him. 
Hashem wants us to be conscious of Him. Hashem wants us to do the things He wants. Why do you set it up this way? This tzimtzum and this tzimtzum that's so powerful, no less. You know, I'm saying a lot of stories tonight, but there's just a lot of good stories. The, uh, the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Chabad, once took a trip with his son, the Rebbe Maharash, the fourth Rebbe. The Tzemach Tzedek was highly revered in, uh, in Russia. At, at his time, peace was almost reached between the Hasidim and the opposition. It was a very, very special time. He was considered a rabbinic authority, halachically, and also a spiritual authority. Everybody knew the Tzemach Tzedek. And uh, his son, that was accompanying him on this trip, was really impressed by the amount of honor that he was being accorded. Any town that he would visit, people would come out and they would honor the Tzemach Tzedek. So he wrote a letter. His son, Erdem Arash, wrote a letter back home describing... Uh, this experience and how great it was to see dad. You know, it's like, he's proud of his father. See father in the limelight, everybody's shining on him. And uh, this was a letter he sent back home. When they got back, apparently the Tzemach Tzedek got a hold of this letter. He found the letter that his son had written home. And he called him in and he said, you know, my blood was spilling like water and you're writing such letters? Because what do you mean? He says, you know, I'll tell you a little, a little parable. There was once a king who wanted to see how his subjects lived. But he wanted to see how they lived in their own life. So he couldn't come as the king. You know, he has to come dressed like a peasant. So he put on some clothes, some simple clothes. And uh, he just told his security detail that he's going out. Secret service should still be on him, but he's going to be with the people. And so the top general of the army was assigned this job of watching the king. Now, nobody knew it was the king, but everybody knows the general. So every city that the king visited, everybody came out to greet the general because this guy is decorated, looks the part, represents the king that everybody knows about and they're talking with him and they're speaking with him and meanwhile the king who came to see how the life is living he got shunned completely so says, imagine the general you know he knows he's there to be the, the king's security and everybody's looking at him and the king is right there nobody's giving him attention so that's how Machzadek said about himself he says people giving me honor when Hashem is right here it's killing me and that's a tzaddik in touch with the truth but, but we're not we, we live the tzimtzum so why, why did Hashem do it I mean what, what's like, what was he trying to is this like a a circus trick is this to make it hard for us We've called it out, in other words. We've identified it. We know it's there, so the, the, the cover's blown, the game is over. But why isn't he coming out? And you know, this is not, not in the Tanya here, in chapter 22. This is a point that comes out later, but I, I thought it belongs. So, uh, so we'll bring it in here. It's to give us a little insight into why the symptom is there. 
so many answers to this question. I want to just share two insights tonight. The first thing is creation by definition is about us. Hashem existed before creation on his own. So the creation was wholly centered around the beings he was going to create. For that reason, Hashem set it up that the world is centered on us. That we should have the power to choose our own destiny in terms of our relationship with our Creator. In other words, Hashem put out the game board. He set it up in a way where we are the only ones that are aware. And then He says, what will you choose? Will you choose a relationship with me? Will you choose the humility to accept a higher power? It's very challenging because we're given, we're wired actually to think that we run our own show. It's very easy to be, you know, to, be, to, 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 to become wrapped up in this interpretation of self-identity and self-sufficiency. Will we find it in us to admit that we need Hashem? To admit that we need a force beyond us? Are we going to recognize Hashem here? Had Hashem revealed it, it wouldn't be a choice. But Hashem wants the relationship to be on our terms. That's the simpler element that's offered. In order for the world to become godly, the world needs to choose it. But there's something deeper. Something deeper that actually connects to the essence of the tzimtzum. To the essence of the concealment. I think I've said this story before, but I'd love to repeat it. It was a young boy, teenager, 17 or 18 years old, in the 60s, in the 50s and 60s, the Rebbe was still accepting private audiences one-on-one. In 75, he stopped it, said people aren't taking advantage of it, they come to me, and then a year later they come to me again and they're still in the same place. (laughs) But it used to be that on your birthday, you could go into the Rebbe, private audience, and uh, the, 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 the Hasidim who merited to be there share these wonderful memories of the care and the, father, the father-like attitude that the Rebbe showed them. And they would, they, no holds barred. You could ask any questions you wanted in these audiences. And there was a young, young teenager who uh, clearly was struggling, like teenagers do. And he asked the Rebbe on this occasion, in this private audience, he said, why... Do I have to fail? What's the point of this struggle up and down and falling and back up? It's difficult. Why did Hashem do it this way? And the Rebbe, you know, classic, classic style, <clears throat> diverts the conversation and starts to ask 
this boy what his hobbies are outside of learning. Of course, you learn the whole day in yeshiva, but what do you like to do? It says art. Art's a big thing for him. Okay? What's the last painting that you were looking at? It says, well, I saw this incredible painting of uh, a sunset. And he starts to describe to the Rebbe this sunset. <clears throat> Beach, golden sand, horizon in the background, sun is setting, couple walking over here, children playing in the sand over there, birds flying, boats in the distance, a whole beauty. And the Rebbe says, how much did, was this painting going for? He must have seen it in a museum. He says, well, it was going for in the five digits. You know, it was $10,000. Huge piece of work. The Rebbe says, can I ask you a dumb question? Imagine the artist sitting on the beach, drawing the painting on that, on that evening, the evening of the sunset. He's got the whole scene in front of him. You see the sand, the boats, the children, the couple. He says, imagine we would walk next to him with a camera and snap a picture of the very same scene. How much would that picture sell for? So the boy goes, I mean, like in the back of a postcard, it could do for 25 cents. So the Rebbe said, I don't understand. Which picture captures the scene more exactly? I mean, a camera, its abilities are unparalleled. It gets, you know, the exact lines and pixels and it captures every detail. I mean, a, an artist's painting, it's good, but, you know, it, how, how good can it be? And yet you tell me that the camera's picture only goes for 25 cents, the artist's picture goes for 10,000. I don't get it. So the young boy is stumped. And the Rebbe says, I'll tell you the answer. Cameras are expected to be perfect. So when they do well, nobody's impressed. Humans are programmed with the possibility of failure, of error. And so when they do great, it's valuable work. And then the Rebbe said, Hashem has enough cameras. He's got angels programmed to be perfect. And a whole day, they're singing to Him and they're dancing to Him and they're praising to Him and they're nullified to Him and they acknowledge His mastery and majesty. But they're, they're programmed to be perfect, so there's nothing about it that's valuable. Be an artist. Hashem put into this world the capability of falling, not to trip you up, but so that you can identify your talents. You know, without the elements that Hashem set up, that conceal the truth of his existence, life would be beautiful. Really. It would be straightforward. It would be awesome. It would be majestic. 
but it would also be programmed and automatic. There wouldn't be there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a deeper beauty. Hashem provided this arena for free will, which sets up a dynamic for real personal effort and achievement. You know, our, our own dignity as humans, our own dignity says that we have to deserve what we get. Nobody likes to live on gifts, right? Everybody knows that. Nobody likes to give, you know, give me $100 every day. After, after a while, you get sick of it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Because in the end, everybody wants to feel like they're, they're making their own life. The Zohar actually calls it bread of shame. He says, you know, for God to give us everything we needed straight forwardly would be wonderful, but it would be bread of shame. Bread of shame. So Hashem created a setting with the possibility to make mistakes. Just like an obstacle course set up for the runners. It's not there to make the runners fall but it's actually there to bring out their untapped skill and talent. And in the same way, Hashem gave humans the possibility, the great, and the, some of the greatest obstacles of all, not seeing Him, not being in touch with Him, temptations, Simtsum at its best, the shell, the husk that obscures totally the identity of Hashem, not to fail us, but to demonstrate that in the marathon of life, we won't be phased by distortion, by disillusionment, by foolishness. But in fact, we will be the ones to pull back the curtain, blow the cover of the tzimtzum, and reveal the world's ultimate master, Hashem Echad. Amen, amen.